Hello, good morning, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host Dave Kale, and I and this is a this is an episode that we've been waiting for for a while now. I know we say that about everyone, literally every <laughs> single episode, like one we've been waiting for. It's, it's true. At the very least, we've been waiting for it for two weeks. Um, but this one's an actually really exciting one. Uh, we're finally going to do the big reveal that hey, Melkor is a bad guy. I mean, I know if you're listening to this, you already knew that. But um, the general, the general TV watching public doesn't know. Okay, guys, they don't know. They're, they're just watching this because they heard it was the new Game of Thrones, and uh, and they're just excited as excited about this as they are when they're watching Game of Thrones to find out who's going to die each week. So um, this is this is we're getting we're we're focusing on the bad guys and um, and why people go wrong and what happened with Melkor uh, or you know or a, as the uh, Noldor refer to him, not Melkor. Anything but that. That's what we'll get into. So uh, let's dive in. Um, uh, I am joined, as always, by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven. And, um, yeah, how, how are you guys doing this morning? Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I am, I am, I am really, I, I really have, it's true, I really have been looking forward to this. This has been the, uh, the, the Melkor flashback episode that we've been, uh, that we have been really excited about ever since we sort of discussed Melkor in broader terms and thinking about what his character arc was going to be. I've been looking forward because this is really going to sort of, this, this episode is going to set the tone for Melkor's participation in the whole season, so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited too because I feel like these are the episodes where, um, you know, for for all our complaints about uh, adapting the, the adaptations of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, uh, um, we're you know we're we're eating crow and and uh, taking the Silmarillion and then adapting away. And I, I think episodes like this are the ones where where there's the most opportunity to do something creative and to be really to to you know like I don't want to say be free of the constraints of the book, but um, but I think I think. I think uh, you guys know, and I'm sure the li- and, and hopefully the listeners also understand what I'm what I'm you know like vaguely not saying. Sure, um, sure. You know, that there's opportunity for some for some innovation here to 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 take to take themes and to do some cool um, character stuff and some storytelling and probably some some interesting visuals and stuff and like because these are these are the kinds of things that in the in the in the actual published Silmarillion we don't really get a lot of detail about what exactly. Was we just know Melkor was off in the void by himself, um, uh, looking for the imperishable flame, you know. But they're they're kind of there's very little character arc there. We don't really see him go bad. He's kind yes. of like from the beginning, he's just sort of you know he's already he, he like we just sort of take it for granted that he's a bad guy. I think there's a chance to do something a little different here. Yeah, I mean we do. Yeah, it's it's not that Tolkien doesn't give any sense of of a fall or or what he fell from. I mean those those passages in the summer, you know, in the Anilindale, describing him in the void seeking the flame imperishable, do kind of point to or suggest a fall. But it's really it's really they're really only suggestions, right? We don't get the narrative yeah. of Melkor's fall. We don't get a full description of what was he like before his fall. Um, we just get sort of suggestions about what his fall consisted of in a sense, you know, that his mm-hmm. desire, you know, how, I mean, all we get are glimpses, right? We see his desire for light and his desire for the flame imperishable, and those are good things, right? You know, his, uh, actually, we just, I was just talking with, uh, with Verlin Flieger about this. I would, Dave, I was telling Verlin Flieger about, uh, film film. Uh, 
you are. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. at the at, at the conference last weekend. <laughs> she she was really interested. She was particularly excited that we had chosen to put it in a frame. She was like, oh, she was so glad. She was kind of <laughs> she was kind of hoping that we would do uh, that we would actually do the Book of Lost Tales. Like we would do the aerial f- frame from from the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, but uh, but it, it was okay. She was she was willing she to accept to it. Her. Yeah, I had to disappoint her about that. But she was really glad. She, you know, I she basically she she feels really strongly like what uh, Christopher Tolkien said in the uh, in the opening of the first volume of the History of Middle Earth series that um, the Silmarillion really does kind of need a frame and it sh- and you know and he regretted not putting the frame in as we talked about before. Um, so anyway, that was um, that was that was that was cool. But anyway. Best appearance. Yeah, exactly. That would be fun. Um, I'll pick an episode that she really wants to micromanage, and she can come on and. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be really fun. Yeah, that that really that would fun. be real cool. We could we could have Verlin on, and she would tell us all the things that we've done wrong because that, that's she, right. she that's is. Right. Uh, uh, she will have. Uh, um, she is. It's Verlin Flieger is such a delightful combination of just you know she is kind. Uh, and sweet and incredibly tough, uh, and it's just the, the way those two things are combined uh, in uh, in in interacting with her are really fun. She's she is she is delightful and charming and kind and helpful uh, and has no tolerance for nonsense uh, <laughs> or error. Uh, it, it's fantastic. Uh, she's really wonderful. Um, okay, so but anyway, what she was the reason I dropped her name is we were talking about this and she, and, and her her very brief synopsis of like Melkor in the beginning was that he was curious. That was the word that she was emphasizing, was curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, him going out into the void, him being impatient with the emptiness of the void, right? He wants to see, he wants to know, he wants to, he wants things to happen. Um, and again, so these are some of the things that we see. Um, anyway, so, uh, so this is, um, uh, these are, these are, we're still sort of doing teasers for the stuff that we're going to get to be talking about. Um, I want to start off with a couple preliminary things and, and sort of looking back, uh, as we generally do. And you may remember that at the end of the last episode, in the previous episode, um, okay, no, I'm sorry, I've, I need to get our, our terminology correct here. In our previous session, session, in which we discussed episode two of season one, um, we were sort of doing a lot of brainstorming, thinking about the Valar, how we're going to depict the Valar, what kind of sort of stories are going to be going on. We talked about sort of the marriages and the the, the sort of the different couples that we see. And, um, you know, we kind of threw out a lot of ideas about Maiar that we particularly want to be introduced to. We talked about Ungoliant, for instance, and uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I said I wanted to come back in the, in our initial portion today and sort of our review portion uh, of today's episode and kind of go through and sort of sort out which of those things do we actually want to have happen in in episode two and which of those things are we going to save until later on. Um, and upon reflection and in particular upon looking ahead at the episode schedule that we had sketched out before, um, I'm actually thinking that I want to hold off on that for now because we have a few, basically, uh, you know, if, um, if you remember the way that we had sketched out the episodes for the rest of the se- of season one, we have, this episode is the first of a series of essentially four episodes, which is Melkor and the Valar interacting, um, there in, there in Almorin, 
um, with <clears throat> this, it starts with this intro to Melkor episode. Then in the next episode is supposed to be when he comes and interacts with the rest of the Valar and, uh, you know, sort of is, 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 is making nice and making friends. We have the building of the lamp, the construction of the lamps in which Melkor assists them, uh, in the, in, in episode five. And then we have the sort of Melkor openly uh, turning against them, we have the first open conflict among the Valar with the destruction of the lamps um, that ha- happens in episode six. So that's like right near the sort of the the, the middle point of season one, because then, but then after that, we're going to get the retreat to Valinor, the establishment and the defense of Valinor from Melkor, um, and the again sort of the the establishment of the new kingdom over there. We had set aside something like two episodes for establishing that and we're going to need a bunch of those stories over there that's when this question is really going to become relevant who whom have we introduced whom have we not introduced what storylines can we have the that most of the sort of second half of the season is a little bit more well episodic in the sense of you know just sort of recalling incidents Things like, you know, we have one episode for the Aule and Yuvana sequence. Um, we talked, we had talked about having one episode for the rebellion of Ase, uh, and his coming back into the fold at the end of that episode. So there are some of those moments like that, um, that we were going to have just have self-contained episodes, uh, to describe those. Um, so, which of the, you know, some of the character introductions we're going to want to save, some of those sort of other side stories that we might want to develop, um, we, uh, we, we can also talk about then. So I want to, you know, right now I want to keep the focus on sort of the central characters, and I think it's actually probably in our best interest to keep the cast of characters upon which we really centrally focus comparatively small um, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to be thinking especially about um, Melkor and um, and uh, and Manwe and Varda and the other of the you know like Olmo and Aule and Yuvana um, right now. Um, so anyway, so 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 I I'm, I want to postpone that for a few episodes. Keep the focus on this on the sort of this central Melkor um, arc here in the middle of this of the series, which is going to be setting up the final conflict for the end of the season. Um, so that's my explanation for why I don't want to do now what I said at the last episode I would want to do at the beginning of this time. Um, uh, instead, I want to uh, address two questions um, that actually Philip Menzies had uh, asked both of them, and I think they're both very good questions. <laughs> Um, Philip says, typical studio exec. Yeah, right, exactly. Let's just push that back a a couple months, right? That sounds fine. (laughs) Anyway, so Philip had asked a couple questions, uh, which I think are, which I think are really good. And one is about, um, sort of challenging us, you know, he was sort of challenging us to think a little bit more, or talk a little bit more anyway, about, um, <laughs> the thinking part is optional, but we should at least talk about it. Um, uh, it, it to, to talk about overarching themes, are, are, are we gonna want to do, like, what's gonna be our central focus? How are we going to be, 
um, sort of building up to that final episode, the parallel that, uh, that Philip drew was, um, season one of the new Doctor Who with all the references to Bad Wolf that sort of come in and you don't really notice it at first and then they creep up and accumulate until it sort of climaxes in the end. Um, and I, I like that. I don't think that that, that, that parallel is going to work for what we're trying to do. Um, I don't, I, I don't see us doing anything, you know, sort of quite like that. But I think the question of having, um, you know, sort of where are we going to end up? And we've talked some about the overarching sort of concerns and, and interest of this, of the first season and in particular where we're going to culminate. Um, but my sort of quick thought about that, I guess I would say if there's sort of a single recurring idea that I would like to come back to, um, that I would kind of like to embed in order to sort of bring it out with a flourish in the final episode, uh, in that kind of way. Um, the, th- I think what it would be for me would be Estelle, not the guy, the term, the, the word, the concept of hope. Um, because the overall trajectory of season one is basically like a fall, not just the fall of Melkor, of course, which is a which is a, a, a of course a major theme of the season. But really, should, you know, the the fall from the golden age, right? I mean, we just when we discussed it before, we talked about how you know having having that you know, and I love this. You know, I remember this was Tom Hillman's suggestion having that final episode be called the the war to begin all wars, um, and that sense that the Valar are gonna have. As things move, you know, as things move along, the reason they don't rush to war right away after, you know, so we're going to have a large gap between, you know, many episodes, like five, six episodes happening between the war at the end and the destruction of the lamps in the middle. And the reason for the gap is that they don't want to go to war with Melkor. They don't want to concede the idea that Arda is marred to that extent, right? They don't want to, they don't want to concede the idea that, um, uh, that war is the only, you know, outcome that they actually have to fight. You know, that like, basically that in itself is a defeat. Um, that in itself is a fall. Um, and that's what in the end they're going to have to be coming to, to recognize, yeah, we, we have to, we have to fight. This war is now inevitable. Arda is in fact inescapably marred and all we can do is try to, you know, sort of preserve what we can and make the best of this situation. Um, but that's a, that's a depressing idea, you know, and, and I, but I think what the, the thread that goes through that is Estelle, that there is hope beyond this and hope not only beyond it, not only despite it, but even through it. And where I would like to see the Estelle idea culminating, um, is with the awakening of the children. I would like to associate the awakening of the elves at the end with hope. Um, that this is, you know, that one of the things that the, the Valar may even be talking about by the end, you know, in the, in the final episodes leading up to the war, um, is, isn't Iluvatar going to do something, right? Is he just going to let this happen? Why won't Iluvatar, why isn't Iluvatar intervening here to preserve this creation that he's made? But of course, the coming of the children is his intervention, right? That is what he does directly. That's the, that is the hand of Iluvatar directly at work, not through the Valar. Um, 
and they are hope. And I think that the that the the Valar will see them as hope, and as both <clears throat> a sign of hope and even in a sense as a vehicle of hope. Which, in turn, then sets up what happens in season two, which is when the Valar screw up by wanting, you know, in their desire to cherish the cre- the children of Iluvatar, you know, they make their disastrous decision to bring the children of Iluvatar to Valinor. And they do it for very understandable reasons, which comes from the fact that they are embracing the children of Iluvatar as a sign of hope at the end of season one. So anyway, and of course, the, we also get the fact that like we don't even have to. Um, in fact, I would kind of like to wait. Not only do I want to sort of not give away who Estelle is immediately, right? You know, we talked about kind of having a reveal um, at the very least at the end of the first episode, maybe not even in the first episode, um, about who Estelle really is. But I would like to just have him called Estelle and not even explain what that word means um, and have that um, only be revealed to him partway through the season. Or not not, not revealed... Well, yeah, I mean, like, the meaning of his name. Have the meaning of his name revealed to the viewers um, that his name means hope. Um, and explain the Actually, relevance I can of that. In the last episode, as a as a parallel, exactly. you, know, you were just talking about the Valar and hope, and, and, and like the, one of the final scenes of the last episode could be Gilrine and and Elrond talking to each other, looking at him while he's playing or something, and that's the reveal that Estelle what what Estelle means. You know, that it becomes clear that that's that's you know, I mean, it'd be a great parallel with the, with what's happening with the Valar in that final episode. Yeah, I like, I like that parallel. I like that parallel that like if we had, you know, so we end, we end the first age sequence of season one with the Valar, you know, uh, seeing, or at least the viewers seeing the Valar talking about the children awakening and the viewers seeing the children awakening and then, um, and, 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 and talking about hope and connecting it with Estelle with hope. And then, um, and then we have, uh, that you know, if we do end, we talked about ending the frame with uh, young Aragorn hanging out with Bilbo on Bilbo's return journey to the Shire. Oh, right, right. And right. Uh, to have maybe Gilrine and Elrond seeing the two of them talking from a distance, and then yeah, and that's when it's that being the moment when it is finally revealed that and Estelle means that's it. what the, his name means. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I got goosebumps. I got yeah, goosebumps. That's cool. That's, that's a great idea. Awesome. Um, so, okay, now the other issue, this is a sort of a, 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 a very interesting book adaptation question that Dave has already alluded to, and it's the question about Melkor's name. Philip was, uh, pointing, was sort of pointing us to the passage where, and this is in the Valaquenta, uh, Philip, if I'm remembering correctly, at the end of the Valaquenta, um, that, um, yeah, uh, it, uh, this is the first, the beginning of the, of the enemy section of the Valaquenta. Last of all is set the name of Melkor, he who arises in might. But that name he has forfeited, and the Noldor, who among the elves suffered most from his malice, will not utter it, and they name him Morgoth, the dark enemy of the world. And so Philip's question was, well, if the Noldor won't utter the name of Melkor, then does that include Elrond? <laughs> like, is he going to not say the name of Melkor? And Philip was arguing that we should save the name Morgoth. We should not have him called Morgoth until later on. But 
you know, basically, how are we going to handle that? Um, you know, with the names, I mean, it would be it would be nice to sort of save that name. Um, I, on the one hand, I sort of feel that it's one thing to say that Noldor won't utter it, and another thing to say that it's forgotten. You know. Um, like, clearly, in a lore master context, people are going to say what his name was, right? They're not going to allow it to be forgotten what his name was by nobody uttering it, and so therefore nobody ever being taught it ever again. Um, so I would think that A, Elrond would know what Morgoth's original name was, um, because he was taught it uh, when he was... T- I mean, this again, you know, Philip is talking about him being, you know... Remembering him being raised by two of, raised, Elrond being raised in captivity by two of the sons of Feanor, who would not be best pleased to sit around and chat about Melkor. Um, right, that's true, but again, I don't think that the son, even the sons of Feanor, especially those two sons of Feanor, um, are going to, um, just say, like, we insist on people being raised in ignorance. I don't, I just, I, that doesn't seem to me how it would work. And I think that Elrond, too, would be willing to utter the name for the same reasons. But, but the other thing I could see, though, I mean, you know, Elrond, I, I, telling a ten-year-old boy is a little dicey. It's like, okay, here's the name, but don't say it out loud. Don't say fire. it out loud, right. Right. Yeah. Should there be a taboo attached to it? I I don't know. I mean, I, it's. I mean, of course, there's there's that custom, right? I mean, they do the same thing in 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 Gondor, right? We get that in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, that's that's you know, Tolkien invented the whole he who must not be named thing, right? I mean, that's how they talk in mm-hmm. Gondor. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, are we going to do that? I mean, are we is are we going to do a he who must not be named thing? Um, with Elrond and the elves, even if he does say it, is he gonna like shut the door and then like you know say it with like a pale and trembling face and tell him never to repeat the name? I kind of don't think so. I kind of think that's making Melkor. T- I think it's giving Melkor too much respect. I can't see Elrond doing that. Um, there's a kind of reverence almost in that, you know. And in Gondor, they they. They seem to, the, the attitude seems to be different. Um, you know, him whom we do not name, they say. Um, uh, the point that Dumbledore makes about, uh, about Voldemort's name in Harry Potter is a good one. You know, that is, it's, it creates an air of mystery and fear, um, about him. And so Dumbledore, in order to defy him, you know, Dumbledore and then Harry, in order to defy him, openly use his name. That's not the attitude in Gondor. In Gondor, it's rather one of, like, disdain. Like, we are not even going to uh, uh, show you enough respect to speak of you by name. It seems to be the attitude with which they uh, uh, they they do it. Um, with Elrond... I don't know. I mean, I kind of think that in the context, that like, he's not going to be just chatting, you know, using the name casually, you know, at the dinner table or something. Um, but I would think that in this kind of explicitly pedagogical context, that he would talk about it openly. I don't, um, um, I, 
I don't right. Would he, use the, would he use the real name or would he use like Morgoth? Yeah, I, I guess I guess now that I think about it, I could imagine I could imagine he might say it once, right? But I don't think, I think he, he would use Melkor. I think he would use Melkor at this point in teaching Estelle because what he's going to build up to with Estelle is, you know, the shift to Morgoth. So he wouldn't like use Morgoth at this point in his teachings. I don't think. I wouldn't think so. But but this is actually sort of a a related question that this ra- that this whole question raises for me. And my question is. To what extent, I mean, Dave, and you already mentioned this, to what extent do we want Melkor's fall itself to be a surprise? I'm kind of thinking we don't want it, that we're not doing it as a surprise, because, like, the Ainulindale itself, I mean, the story of the music is kind of a spoiler, right? I mean, it's, um, the whole shape of Tolkien's narrative Especially through the Ainulindale, and 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 more broadly because of the Ainulindale, I, I mean, like the Ainulindale is one big fat spoiler, right? And that's that's exactly how the Ainulindale works. The, the music of the Ainur is a spoiler for all of history, right? I mean, that's that's how it acts. That's how the Valar look back on it, right? You know, they're like, "What did I, you know, what's going to happen next in history?" I I I, I, I got to remember that, you know, that like plot summary I read online before watching the movie, right, in order to recall what was supposed to happen next in this film that I'm watching. I mean, that's kind of what it's like, right? You know, if you if you read a synopsis about what's supposed to happen, or, you know, you read a review first and then go to watch the film, that's kind of the experience that the Valar have as history unfolds, right? They, they don't know everything. They haven't read the script, but they have been told what is going on and what the major themes are. Um... So, I, I, um, I don't think, I mean, there are some things, of course, that we can do reveals on and that we can make a surprise, at least to non-Tolkien readers. But I don't think that Melgor's Fall is one of those things. I think that we're open about the fact that, that to me, that sort of the, the bigger question is not like, we want to kind of hook you and get you emotionally attached to this character, but then, oh no, he's going to turn out to be the bad guy and you didn't even realize. I don't think it's that as much as this guy is the bad guy. Like, we know he's the bad guy. You know he's the bad guy. And therefore, because we all know he's the bad guy, Let's look at what happened. You know, let's let, I think the anticipation of that, um, is actually going to be more interesting. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think that I would actually think maybe Elrond could use the name Morgoth. Um, he could tell Estelle that his name was Melkor in the beginning. But I think he could just casually refer to him as Morgoth. I mean, it might be confusing for the viewers, I guess. Um, but within the frame that is in the in the first age uh, story, people, of course, are referring to him as Melkor. It doesn't get referred to as Morgoth until Feanor names him that in season three, um, mm-hmm. or at the very end of season two, at the very earliest, somewhere around the last episode of season two or first episode of season three, he gets named Morgoth. Um, uh, within now, the I agree with Chris Stevens. You know, I think for film purposes, I think we should identify as Melkor and make the actual name change to the point where it is revealed. In other words, be consistent. Melkor. Because, yeah, because you're right. I think it is going to com- confuse the audience yeah. because Valar are still going to refer to him as Melkor during yeah, the Valar scene. Absolutely. So, 
I think the more, and I think it would be more dramatic, even though we know it's coming, I think the Morgoths change. Change to Morgoth will be more dramatic by having watched it out. The other thing, back to your point about knowing that he's a bad guy, and I agree, you know, I don't think there's any reason we need to pull punches. But, you know, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head at the moment, but I know there are many stories that I have either watched or read where I've watched or read multiple times, and I know who the bad guy's going to be, and I still root for him. Right, right. <laughs> Even though I know. And I would like to have that be the case here, where it, because it fills two purposes. One is... It, it allows the folks that already know to kind of root for them or, or watch the downfall, but also for folks who don't know, you know. Yeah. yeah. It, doubtless, uh, yeah, yeah, doubtless it was I, the Phantom I, Menace I think, you were thinking of, Trish. Oh, that's it. Of <laughs> 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 yeah, go, Anakin! Yeah. Go, Anakin! <laughs> yeah. Let's make sure we get the same, we, we, we invest the same effort in getting a um, high-powered action. Yes. You know? Yes. 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 Well, um, you're, 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 you're saying he wasn't going to feature in your fantasy casting, Dave? That's... <laughs> Which one, Hayden Christensen or the little kid? <laughs> well, the little kid was fine. Who not to cast fantasy lists, right? This is the fantasy you know, not cast list. Yeah. I guess, I guess, you know, this is one of those things where, this is one of those things where we must we must be disciplined about not trying to slavishly follow the book on principle mm-hmm. like you. Well, mm-hmm. the elves would never say Melkor's name, so 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 no one in the frame story can say it and it's impossible to reveal his name on the show. <laughs> right. Like clearly right. clearly like like you said Trish, how cool will it be if you have a character like like Melkor who has this this very interesting complex fall arc that that um, you know, I mean, the initial fall will be very early, but 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 sort of the fall and then fall again and fall again and uh, um, uh, will actually unfold over two or three seasons, and there'll be this very dramatic point or turn um, at the end of the second or third season or something where the character's identity will be completely different, where yes. where on screen people will just cease to refer to him as the name that everyone has come to know him by. Um, and have an completely different identity for the rest of the TV show. Yes. Uh, yeah, the power of that is is by far and away worth fudging the whole, well, Elrond shouldn't be saying his name. <laughs> right, exactly. No, it's really cool. I, I, and Dave, that, that I think is exactly the way to think about it. Like, what do you gain by preserving that one small point compared to what you would lose by so yeah i mean i think we have so much more to gain by doing that and i and by the way this that, that just made me think um because yet yeah, you're right we had that moment the moment of the darkening of valinor the theft of the silmarils the murder of finway all of those things kind of together that's the moment at which feanor renames him morgoth and he's going to be known as morgoth ever after but i think there we also show not just the fact that his public opinion polls dive at that point, but rather that is, it's not just about what other people call him and what other people think of him, but he himself actually changes. And what is it that could change about Melkor at that point? The burning of his hand by the Silmarils. That I think is what changes him in oh, yeah. that point. Oh. That and and he sets himself up as like the you know this is when we get the Iron Hell of Angband, um, and him setting up setting himself up overtly as a tyrant. Um, we don't have him do that. I don't think we have Melkor the tyrant. I I don't you know I think that Utumno. We don't get any descriptions about Utumno. We know it's 
a stronghold, but we don't know anything else. I think Otumno should be awesome. I think it should, Otumno should be like paradisical. I think it should be. I was going to just say that. It his be happy more place. along the lines of Melkor being a loner. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Being a yeah. Yeah. It's like his retreat. Well, you know, we could split, we could, we could split the difference. In this, and Elrond could say, "Well, his name is Melkor, but we will henceforth refer to him as M." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I see. So yeah, I, I mean, I do. I, I think we should just have them use the name. I mean, the other parallel, of course, Tolkien has already done the same thing in the Silmarillion, right? Who wrote the Silmarillion? It was elves, right? So, I mean, what did like the Noldor scribe be like? No, 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 I can't. I'm going to have to hire like a Sindar to come and write this word. <laughs> I'm just going to leave a blank spot and I'll hire, you know, like a temp to come in and write the name Melkor and all of these spots. We should just switch and replace all the blank spots. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. But you know what name, I can't say it. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, so whoever, whatever, whoever compiled, and I know Bilbo compiled it, but again, he didn't make it up, right? You know, so... Um, you know, or, or yeah, I mean, or, or is that what we're supposed to imagine, right? That like the, the, the actual Noldor scribe whom uh, Bilbo translated from just used, uh, you know, like used Morgoth all the way through and Bilbo was like, this is silly. And I, I don't know. I mean, but basically the published Silmarillion, um, with the published Silmarillion, which does not overtly have the Bilbo translated it frame, um, is, uh, um, is, is, uses his name all all through until the t- the point when his name is changed. So I think you know basically we just take the lead not from that one sentence in the Valaquinta, but from Tolkien's actual usage in the rest of the Silmarillion essentially. Um, but I would like to see some version of that passage in the Valaquinta, you know, said. Yeah. Well, have I mean Elrond can tell him, you know, basically because yeah. of course Little Estelle yeah. should probably know that he shouldn't go around cheerfully talking about Morgoth all the th- or Melkor all the time, okay. you know. He should, he should, he should realize that although it might not be, you know, Timothy Fisher was asking if it's going to be like a dirty word, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, Gil Ryan is going to have to like usher him out in embarrassment when he says it at the dinner table or something like that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There's going to be like a, a, is he going to have like a Ron Weasley like friend who keeps shouting, don't say the name? (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't. I, so you know, I, I don't think we want to have that particular drama. So no, so exactly, we <laughs> should have. We should. I mean, and I don't think it should be to that extent. But I think that Elrond would caution him, right? Would tell him, you know, like the the elves don't use his name, and maybe he just says something like, um, you know, uh, the elves now, um, you know, know him by another name. Like mention that he has another name, but don't even say it. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't even say what the name is yet. And then that, so that, that rename, that name can still wait to be revealed. I do kind of, you know, the, you know, the more I think about Dave, your suggestion about that, you know, sort of that dramatic moment. I mean, in, in, in that's why, to me, this is sounding like the culmination of season two, basically, that we have the darkening of Valinor and simultaneously sort of like the sort of the final darkening of 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 Melkor into Morgoth at the end of that season so you know the, like that's the whole sort of climactic irony of the season finale of season 2 is that he has succeeded in his plan <clears throat> which is to destroy the trees and to uh and to uh 
you know, to, to cast Valinor into darkness, but in doing, and to regain, and to, to take the Silmarils for himself. But in doing so, he has, you know, sort of cast darkness on him, on his own soul, and has changed his name and his identity, and he is now irreversibly Morgoth instead of Melkor anymore. That's really cool. I think it would work really well as a climactic thing at the end. And so I, I do like the idea of saving the name until that time. I hate to say this, but we are so far behind. Oh, there, we're <laughs> fine. We're fine. Notice, though, how we're already making progress towards stuff we want to do in today's episode. Okay. Yeah. We're almost we're almost talking about this episode. Yeah, we're almost, almost. we're almost ready to begin now. Uh, and I think actually we've made some pretty good progress towards beginning, so that's good. All right. <laughs> With that reminder in mind, uh, let's do announcements, right? Let's do Unfortunately, we have a short, I think we can make it short today. I agree. Do, I agree. It's just one item, but the one item is a very significant one item. Absolutely. Our one item is next week. So, um, as we explained before, the, our, this is, this month, of course, the month of October is the month of the Signum University Mythgard Institute fundraiser. And, uh, in this month, we are in each week doing a special event featuring one of our, uh, special programs. And next week is the Silm Film Project Focus Week. So our special event next week is going to be focused on the Silmarillion Seminar, um, no, Silmarillion Seminar, on Silmarillion Film Project. Project, and it's going to be, we'll probably talk about some rolling seminar too. Um, and it is going to be our live interview with Jim Butcher. So um, I, I, we are very excited about that. This is going to be on the evening of the 13th um, at 8 p.m. That's Tuesday evening, right? Trish, am I, am I, am I remembering Tuesday, correctly? Right, Tuesday yeah. evening. Tuesday evening. I mean, not, sorry, not 9.30, 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock Eastern time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're going to And gonna... for those of you that may not know what on earth somebody who writes about wizards and and fairies and vampires has to do with Tolkien is Jim Butcher is demonstrably a big Tolkien fan. Yes. Um in the Dress and Files series in particular I he, I don't think he could really weave it into his other series, but in the Dress and Files series he <laughs> he has a lot of Tolkien sort of easter eggs and and blatant references. And so that's, you know, one aspect of it. And then he's also had experience with adaptation of the Dresden Files. And then also he's just got two other, I mean, he's got one other series that's really awesome and one series, one new series with the new first book that came out that looks very promising as well. So, um, uh, but he's, he's warned about what we're doing. And so he's happy to talk about, um, uh, his opinions of Jackson's adaptations, <laughs> yes. um, his own experience adapting. And also, yeah. you know, can you give us his opinions it? about the adaptations of his work? <laughs> Yeah. I know, I know. I, I wonder if he'll actually talk about that. I know, I know. <laughs> She's, you know, his assistant said he'd be happy to talk about his experience, and we'll just see what he has to say. That's and good. then, um, you know, he's aware of the Silm Film Project, and so, you know, we can tee up questions, and the listeners can also, of course, tee up questions, you know, to him about anything. We, you know, we could run our ideas by him before we run them by Berlin. Of course, right? <laughs> that makes sense. Anyway, so it's it's going to be a great night, and if nothing else, you get to see Corey and Dave and I go into fan puddles. We'll just turn into yeah. major fan, you know, like, oh, Mr. Butcher, oh! <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally more mature and, and, we'll try and to, control. And we're going to try to, oh, we're going to try to, like, more mature. Okay. yeah, we're going to try to worm details out of him about uh, peace talks and mirror, mirror. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Why cats is what what my thing is. I'm not to say I'm not against it. I think it's pretty 
be awesome. He's obviously a cat person, but why cats? Oh, you mean in the Aeronauts Windless, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, actually, yes. I, I've started reading that, by the way. I just started reading yes. that a couple of days ago. It's, he's, he's obviously a cat person. I mean, yeah. I, this is not a spoiler. This is not a spoiler. This is pretty funny, though. This cat can talk, right? So his, his little preferred human says to him at one point, you are a perfect monster. And he goes, I am a perfect everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really does get cats really well, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, he's yeah. it's clear that Butcher is much more of a cat person than Tolkien was. No question. <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. We should say that. Um, obviously, you're much more of a cat person, judging especially by this latest book. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. so the the sign up for that event is on the events page for the fundraiser. So if you go to signumuniversity.org/fund, you'll actually at the top of that page see there's a link there for the registration link for the Jim Butcher Night, and it'll be lots of fun. We yeah. hope you can make it because it. It's going to be lots of fun. Yes, and we won't go into full details now because it would take too long, and we'll we'll have another episode uh, on which to review this. That is another another of our sessions on which to review this in more detail next time. Um, but do just kind of save the easy to remember date on Halloween is when we're having our big uh, culminating webathon, uh, and we'll be doing a bunch of fun things, including what, as we have already alluded to, our uh, our fun fantasy casting discussion. Um, so people can uh, come and bring their ideas. Not this is not a season one casting discussion. This is a sort of a Silmarillion wide, like you know, a chance for everybody to bring and talk about. You know, people have been full of suggestions for what actors we should and should not use, uh, and that will be a really fun. Dis- you know, but we 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 keep not having a chance to actually talk about that. Uh, both because we're trying to stay focused on accomplishing things, just like today, moving along like clockwork, and. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, just partly because we, we were not there in the season yet. So, um, so it, that'll be a really fun thing to discuss. So that's one of the things we're going to be doing. There are going to be a whole bunch of other events too, which we'll tell you more about also, but, but that's the stuff that's coming up. Okay. So, um, two, uh, <clears throat> uh, two quick, um, uh, shout, well, one, one, one shout out and, uh, uh, Trish, I was glad that you, you made a note about this. Um, I've been wanting to mention this. Um, uh, one of, uh, a sort of a long time Tolkien professor, Mythgard listener, um, uh, named Matt Gooding has been doing this really fun project, um, which is he's been going through the entire, uh, sort of retelling the entire Hobbit story in haiku form on Twitter. He's been doing this for several weeks now. Because, of course, who wouldn't do that? Right? Yeah. I mean, why, why not do that? Yeah. Really? Exactly. <laughs> uh, but many of his haikus have been, uh, have been really good. I was, my favorite one, I think, uh, so far was the one in which he actually included, ear, who are you? Uh, from the, <laughs> from the troll's purse as one of the lines in his haiku. I was, uh, delighted that, uh, there, cause there are too few, um, there are too few haikus which incorporate direct quotations yes. from purses. So, um, th- that Look was... Look for him a... on Twitter. It's Matt Gooding, M-A-T-T, first name, nope. G-U-T-T-I-N-G, last it, name. Yes, yes. That's his full name, and his Twitter handle is Matt without the second T. Yeah, M-A-T-G-U-T-T-I-N-G uh, is his Twitter handle. So, right. yeah, definitely recommend that. And the other thing that we wanted to mention was just sort of uh, recent news that has come up. And I don't know all that much about this, but I've heard rumors about it um, that uh, 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 Patrick 
Rothfuss's uh, name of the wind is being made into a, 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 a they've they're making this into a movie and a video game and, and a TV series and a TV series. Okay, I'm really interested. And to I see. have no idea how the movie and TV series thing goes together, but but I, that just really got and, my attention. And it's a yeah. reference point for us because hey, we can span the Silmarillion film project. <laughs> right. Hey, we'll do a movie and a TV series and a video game and a video game. Yeah, we should start planning the video game at the same time. But yeah. can you imagine the Ina Windaway in a video game? Yeah. Turbine on the phone. Oh man! Yeah, exactly. It'd be, like, it'd be like Guitar Hero. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like Guitar Hero. Yeah, yeah, that would be excellent. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, I don't know, but it's it's. I'm going to be really interested to see. I mean, I'm 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 hoping. You know, here's me hoping from a distance, knowing absolutely no details about this other than that one kind of tantalizing fact. That right. they've right. announced all of these things all at the same time, um, that is kind of promising to me. In that, what I what I hope this means that they're doing is that they're actually sort of spanning all three different uh, media. Well, movie and TV are kind of different media. Um, I wouldn't call them different media exactly; different formats, perhaps. Um, but anyway, it, it, it's. Um, uh, I hope that they're really conceiving. I mean, that is to say. The video game, for instance. I hope the video game is not just like, we're going to make a movie and we're also going to do a spin-off video game on it. Again, because they always do that. You know, that's not interesting. Um, right. you know, everyone would sort of, so I'm hoping by the fact, I mean, and my hope is that if they were just planning to do that, they wouldn't even bother including it in the announcement because like, of course they're going to do, of course there's going to be a spin-off video game. Isn't there always? Um, you know, like one of those, like the, the sort of boring Lord of the Rings games that came out like for Xbox and PlayStation right after the Peter Jackson films where you just basically were playing a video game where you took the characters through the plot of the movie, essentially. Yeah, that's a good point. You yeah. know, I mean, like that kind of video game is really boring, but I mean, but, but also really common. I mean, it's, it's, um, um, uh, anyway, so my hope is that it's different, you know, that that's not what yeah, we're talking and- about. I want to invite the listeners to sort of help us keep track on this. So if you see news about it, you know, you know, could you always open up a thread? We could open up a thread in the discussion board specifically just to track what's happening here because it's a it's of interest, I think, in terms of our project, in terms of what could what would be possible, you know, and gives us easily another five years or so of the life of the project, probably. <laughs> I mean, the film and the video game, no problem. Oh yeah, well, you know, I, I I think the thing is when we finish with the TV show, we we'll then probably want to turn to designing the video game. You know. There you go. Yep. But of course, by then we'll have the fully functioning holodeck, so that'll be even better. That'll be just the time. That's right. To uh, <laughs> design the video game. Um, we Moving should be, on, we should right. be finished with the TV show by 2050. That's my pledge. Anyway. Oh um, well, then yeah, no problem. Full yeah. full range holodeck for sure by then. That's that's the plan. That's the plan. Okay, so let's start the show. Um, uh, welcome everybody, and today we're going to. Talk about Melkor. Okay, sorry, I'm just making fun of myself now. Um, now we only have 45 minutes because you do have ish because you do have a hard stop. I do have a hard stop. I know we're good. We're good. Um, here's 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 what we're gonna do. I want to begin by talking about sort of the scope and sequence. Let's agree on 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 the parameters of episode three first. And my first question is, how much of Melkor? Where are we going to stop? Melkor's story in episode three. How much 
of, and to say this even more pointedly, how much of Melkor in Arda are we fixing to do in this episode? Um, my own vote would be for not that much. I'm kind of thinking his arrival in Arda and maybe his establishment of himself at Utumno is the absolute limit of what we talk about. And we save all... There's, as you know, several people uh, on the discussion boards were making really interesting suggestions. I particularly like some of Hakon's suggestions um, about ways in which he might be interacting with the other uh, uh, the other Valar. And I want to come back to those for next time, for the next episode, um, where I think they'll be really relevant. But I don't think we want to go there yet. I think we want to uh, stick to Melkor in the Void and his descent into Arda. Sort of the uh, the 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 backstory. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I do want to just say that we did decide when we were mapping out the, the season, the setting up of Atumno was included in this episode. But okay. it certainly can be like the end, kind of, you know, toward the end. Right. And I, I don't know, I mean, yeah. Actually, Atumno itself might be something that we introduce in a future episode and just have him coming to Arda, you know, and not like actually, you know, uh, undertaking a construction project during this, uh, during this episode. Um, as I certainly think that the building of Utumno obviously should be happening off screen. We're going to have enough construction projects with the building of the lamps, uh, you know, in a couple episodes. There's only, um, so there's only so much scaffolding we should really show on screen, I think. <laughs> um, how much of this episode then are you thinking would be not on Arda versus how much on Arda? Well, I was thinking less not on Arda and more on Arda. Are well, you see, I, I am kind of thinking the opposite, I think. I think that the, that, cause this is the time. This is the whole time. This is the only time for us to show what Melkor was up to. Cause that time, you know, uh, when he's in the void looking for the flame imperishable and, and his Varda moment, um, his rejection by Varda, all that stuff is, I mean, that's formative, right? I mean, that, those, that, that's where we see the seeds of his fall. It's not his fall yet, but that's where we see the seeds of his fall, um, being sown. Um, so I think we, we, we really want to, you know, dwell there for a bunch of the episode that creates a visual challenge because we have to come back to one of the questions that I asked last time, how on earth are we going to do the void visually speaking? Um, I don't want to get bogged down on that first. I want to make sure we get the bigger story ideas and then we can come back to that. But, um, uh, but, but yeah, I'm thinking I, I, I would, I would, I would vote for like 90, 95% of Melkor's time being pre Arda. Wow. And him only just basically just we end with his arrival in Arda, and that's it. Um, that's 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 what I would that's what I would uh, vote for. Um, okay, because here's what I'm thinking. I had this, I had this flash idea. Okay, I want to do. Um, oh, and let me address, Philip, uh, just said in the chat that he doesn't think that we redo the music. No, 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 I don't think we redo the music either. I think that this is all pre-music. Um, we do all of the Melkor, the pre-music Melkor stuff. 
Um, cause I think that his encounter with Varda is pre music also. Uh, at least that's where I would place it. Um, because I think it's connected. Um, I think it's, I, I think it's, I think his, his attraction to Varda is connected with his, his seeking the flame imperishable. I mean, I think the right. two things are, are, are almost like expressions of the same thing. And what I think this enables us to do is to personalize his, his attraction to Varda. The idea of his attraction to Varda is like a gift. If we didn't have that, when if Tolkien hadn't written that sentence in the Valquenta, then all we would have is, is Melkor's desire for the flame imperishable. And just think how hard that would be to depict right? We don't even know what the flame imperishable is. We don't know what it looks like. How on earth would we even visually depict the flame imperishable? I have no idea how to depict the flame imperishable. And how, what's more, how do you describe his desire for it? How do you make, like, I want the flame imperishable and, and what that means and what that suggests. How do we make that, how do we convey that in any way? You know, just him Look, so, I mean, what we actually, like, we make a fire, like, okay, it's like a torch in the distance, and he's making calf eyes at a, at a, at a burning fire. It doesn't make any sense. Like, how on earth are we gonna convey that? Or how are we gonna have him do a, do a, do a, like, a Miltonic monologue, right? You know, where he's there talking about his internal states, like, like Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost? I don't, that wouldn't be very interesting either. Varda, however, this we can understand. This we can convey, right? His attraction to Varda, his desire for Varda and Varda and their conversation. Now we have two people conversing with each other and him talking to her and trying to convince her and by his his words to her, we can see and we can hear in his words his own desire. And they can be talking about the flame imperishable. But of course we can, we can, and we can see how his desire through their conversation, we can come to see how his desire for the flame imperishable is tied up with his desire for her, that the two things are sort of expressions of the same thing and how his rejection by her is also connected in his, you know, it's like this, why won't Iluvatar let him see the flame imperishable? Why won't he let him have it? Um, you know, he's curious. He wants to see things filled in the void. He could say, like Aule says later on, this desire to make things is set in my heart by you, Iluvatar, right? I'm just trying to express my being over here, uh, and you're playing hard to get. What's up with that, right? And Varda the and, same and way. Iluvatar says, hey, Tolkien didn't write a whole lot about it, so we don't really know what it is. So, exactly, okay. right. That's Sorry, fine. I'm just, I'm, I have to stick with the written text, dude. That's all I've got. <laughs> um, um Let's see. There was something I was going to say about that. What was I going to say about that? <laughs> um, oh, well, let me just backtrack just a tad, which is I would like to uh, to advocate maybe a 50-50 split instead of a, you know, 90-10 split. Um, because I think, you know, our next episode is, is, is quote-unquote, Melkor comes among the Valar. And I think there's a point to be made before we do that um, on Arda which is Phil, Philip's point about him being the loner, you know, the, he, and we show him actually going off on his own on Arda. So that would kind of be a, a natural 
uh, progression from being in the void to being an Arda, he continues that kind of loner thing before he ends up coming among the Valar. So maybe 50-50 or maybe 60-40, I don't know, something. I can see that. I mean, I just, my question is what's going to happen with him on Arda? Because I don't want to, I mean, I I think we want to save his actual introduction to and interactions with the other Valar in Arda until next episode. So what's he going to do? For well, I 40% think Philip has a suggestion, you know, that would obviously have to be fleshed, but he said, you know, um, Melkor starts to tinker at the edges of the other's creations. So you don't see him interacting with them, but they're off in quote-unquote distance. And maybe showing things getting out of control and then coming to ruin was not his original intention. And then I love this one. He may also discover that he has a surprisingly huge amount of power. So he discovers, this is not something he necessarily knows when he comes to art initially, but he discovers, you know, kind of like how we did last time about how the Valor aren't sure how to interact with one another or what's up or that kind of right. thing. He kind of has his own version of that where he come, he actually has a realization of the degree of power that he himself has, which only adds to his kind of opinion of himself sort of thing. You know, the, so that all could be happening by himself. You know, it doesn't have to have a lot of interaction with the Valor uh, in this episode. Right. Um, I, so I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I... I kind of think he knows how powerful he is. I think he's got a pretty, um, I don't, I mean, maybe solid, healthy, healthy <laughs> self-esteem, healthy self-image. <laughs> yeah. I think that low self-esteem is not going to be Melkor's problem. Um, I think he, I, I do think, I mean, if, yeah, I, I do think he knows that, um, <clears throat> and I want to show his depiction with the, or, or his in, interaction with the other Valar. But I would vote for Loner first. Um, right. Yeah, but, I agree. But yeah, he, I agree. here's here's the other thing, though. How about not Loner entirely? That is, I would kind of like to introduce the unfallen Balrogs too. Mm. Um, what in the world will they look like? And are they? Yeah, I was going to say they're not going to look like what they end up looking like. Right? Will they like have wings? Like, they will maybe not they have lose wings. Their wings when they, fall. they will not have. They lose their wings when they fall. That would be awesome. Actually, I love this idea. Okay, you've totally in in one sentence you've convinced me. I changed my mind. The Balrogs. What a great joke that will be. The Balrogs will oh, yeah. totally have wings until they fall to evil and they will lose their wings. Love it. I love everything about that. I as there's nothing at all about that I don't love. So yes, they are winged. That's now all I know about them. Uh, the unfallen Balrogs. Um, uh, and will they end up looking like uh, you know, like the traditional uh, depictions of like archangels? And stuff, yeah, you know? that, I mean, I, well, I was already thinking that. I mean, the one adjective I would have used a minute ago. Now, of course, it's been supplanted by winged. But I, the, the but the the one adjective I would have used to describe them would be gorgeous. Like I want the Balrogs to right. be go- the unfallen Balrogs. Right. Uh, to be, to be, to be gorgeous. So gorgeous plus winged equals kind of archangelic. Yeah. I mean, that's, yep. that's kind of what I'm thinking. But they're spirits of flame, right? So, th- I mean, they should be, they should be visibly associated with flame, with fire. Um, which would also explain why Melkor would want to draw them to him. Yeah. Well, right? I think he's associated with flame too. I mean, right. I, you know, yes. that, I, I think that's, you know, and that, that's sort of the role in as much as in these earlier episodes, he looks like he's going to be, you know, or, or is, you know, it, it's sort of attempting to play a role among the rest of the Valar. His role would be fire. He would be, he would be to fire, you know, so he, Aule, Olmo, Manway, um, you know, our, 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 our air, earth, water, and fire. Um, 
so yeah, I, but uh, but yeah, they, no, they should be gorgeous winged. Um, so Gosh, call them bell rights. Well, here be bell, bell, bell rights. <laughs> yeah, Balrog is such a sinister sounding word. It would it be it would be really it hard is. to call well, I mean, them you know, that. Because I mean, he's going to change the name, so maybe yeah. uh, you know. Well, and that's um, the thing. So he, and, and also, their fall to evil. They lose their wings around at the same time that Morgoth would turn to evil. Like what would we say? End of season two, right? I mean that would be a concurrent kind of thing happening to the Balrogs, correct? Yeah, yeah. Tom Hillman says they keep the shadow of their wings, right? That's what uh, that's what Tolkien oh, describes. Oh, there you in, go. In, I love that. Yeah. Which would yeah. explain then why Tolkien describes it the way he does in Lord of the Rings. Perfect and it would also time. explain why so many visual artists are confused, right? You know, they can that's perceive right. the shadows oh, of the Balrogs' that. wings. I love this retcon. This is awesome. <laughs> so right, so we've, awesome. we've not only retconned the Balrogs and their lack of wings, but we have explained why everybody is confused about whether or not Balrogs have wings. This is chapter five all over again. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I love it. I love it. So the Balrogs are actually Morgoth's first posse, basically. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So now here's a little homework project. Um, and it's, this is especially a homework project for uh, for people who like to have fun uh, with the published etymologies and, you know, with Tolkien's invented languages. Gothmog will not work as a name for the unfallen captain of the Balrogs. Um, I want to introduce him um, because, I mean, but Gothmog is an evil name. It sounds evil. It's, you know, we can't have this gorgeous archangelic figure being like, hey, Gothmog. Um, so we need another name for him. I think his name can change too, uh, like Morgoth. Um but we need a Melkor equivalent, you know, a sort of a Melkor parallel. We need another name for Gothmog. So, um, so I want those of again, those of you who uh, uh, are familiar with Tolkien's languages, I want suggestions. It doesn't have to be instant, but I want suggestions by next week for the unfallen Gothmog's name. Okay, uh, something that will work with this sort of uh, light, uh, you know, sort of bright, shining, radiant, uh, angelic figure. Um, and you know, I, I have another question. This is, you're, you know, I shouldn't even be asking this now, but I wanted to say it so it'll get in, in Megan's notes. We should maybe consider also Sauron having a different name initially. Don't you think? Because all the bad uh, guys yeah. get name changes. Like, he doesn't. No, we, we have some. He has one, right? I can never remember what it oh, is, he? but somewhere oh, okay. buried in like the Lost Tales or somewhere. He, he, oh, okay. Has, okay. So we can refer back to Sauron. Is that true, Corey? Well, he has a bunch of names. Um, but uh, I don't think um, Gorthaur, for instance, um, is. It doesn't say that he had another name other than Sauron. Um, but Gorthaur the Cruel obviously was not his original name. Um, and uh, of course, Thu was the original. I don't know if you're thinking of Thu as the name, his name in in the way of Lathian. Right. Oh, right. That's right. right. Before his, before Tolkien changes his name to Sauron, um, uh, he could just be through. I mean, that 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 would be kind of fun. I mean, just sort of fun in a like Tolkien Easter eggish way, right? To have his name be through and then have it changed to yeah. Sauron um, uh, later on. But I think he shouldn't meet Thu yet. So, or Thu or Sauron or whatever no, we're going to call him. We're, we're, I, I'm ahead of myself, so yeah. yeah I just, that comes in yeah, later. Yeah. That that comes because yeah. he's still with Aule, right? Sauron is right. still going to be hanging right. with Aule, um, in, in, in Elmerin. Um, 
but but Gothmog is with is with him. Gothmog and the Balrogs are with are with uh, you know whatever we call them are with uh, uh, Morgoth from the beginning. Excuse me, Melkor from the beginning. Um, okay, so we're so we're going to want on Fallen Balrog. So he should be a loner. We should emphasize his lonerness and him setting up on his own. But I do want to have the Balrogs or have the Balrogs come and join him after he's the ah yeah that's cool. Have him come alone. Right, he doesn't come with a posse. Right, he comes alone into Varda, and then after he arrives, he he sort of sort of establishes his place, and then the Balrogs come and follow him. Right, now the Balrogs go, "Ooh, look at that guy over there!" Ooh, <laughs> yeah. let's go see him. They emphasize that they it's a, it emphasizes their following him, their 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 coming after him, their 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 devotion to him. He hasn't sought them out, right? Because it's not that he wants followers. He's not about followers. You know, he he's he he, he doesn't care so much about that because he is a loner fundamentally. But he attracts them, and um and they are his people. I mean, just as in the ancient, you know, in the in the original versions, you know, all of the major Valar have people, you know, they have a bunch of lesser spirits who are, uh, you know, sort of of the same kind, though of much lesser stature than they, um, you know, Manway is surrounded by all these sylphs and spirits of the air. And, and, and so similarly, Morgoth, or excuse me, Melkor has, uh, has, has, has the Balrogs, has these, these fire spirits, um, who gather about him. Um, but again, it's not, he doesn't come as a general. He doesn't come as the leader of a posse. He comes alone and then his posse forms around him and is drawn to him. Um, that I think would be pretty cool. But let me go back to the Varda thing for a second because I want to address Tom Hillman, um, made exactly the point. See, I, the, the, the point that I think is really crucial and that I've been thinking about too because there is, of course, a great advantage. As I said, Varda is wonderful because in having Varda, um, gives us a way to make visible and comprehensible in human terms his desire, you know, Melkor's desire for the flame imperishable and, uh, his frustration, uh, with, uh, Iluvatar. We can, we can personalize that and make that understandable. But of course, as Tom Hillman points out, he says, doesn't this run the risk of turning Melkor's fall into just the jilted lover turns to evil, um, uh, theme? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a huge risk there. Exactly. I mean, with that advantage comes that risk that, and, and the risk, Tom, I would summarize the whole risk in the word that you, uh, into, in, into the word just, right? Is it merely the jilted lover turns to evil? Um, because in a sense, is it the story of a jilted lover turning to evil? Well, yes. I think that's actually kind of the story of the fall. I think it's Melkor's story. Um, that he is a lover. Not, 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 and I don't just mean like he has a crush on Varda and she, you know, won't go to the prom with him and so he decides to, you know, blow everything up. Like, it's not that, that, that's not what I'm saying, of course, but what I am saying is, he, he is motivated not by the desire for evil and the desire for destruction, but by love and by the desire for good and by the desire for light. But he is thwarted in that desire, and it's his being thwarted in his desire for light and for power, which is a good thing, too. Uh, that it's his thwarting in those things, which is what leads him down the, you know, his reaction to being thwarted that leads him down the path towards evil. So in a sense, yes, that is the, that is, the, that is one way to understand the core of what he's doing. But we have to be really careful not to just make it sound like, you know, 
like a, a an after school drama. So um, so that's a serious concern, and it's one of the things that I hate most that happens in a whole bunch of Hollywood stories, and in particular Hollywood adaptations, where you know they're going to add a big romantic plot, right? As if anyone would, like, adapt a Tolkien story and just add, like, a huge romantic plot to it, right? Um, but worse than adding a romantic... See, this is why I didn't mind all that much about uh, about Keeley and Toriel in the Hobbit films, because although, of course, they went pretty far out of their way to add a romantic storyline to that book, at least they didn't do the far worse thing which is to transform some of the subtle, interesting, and complicated ideas and just sublimate them into a really simple romantic drama, right? That's what I hate, you know, like, as if sometimes watching movies you get the sense that, like, Hollywood believes there is just absolutely nothing more profound and interesting in all of the universe than, like, sexual tension, right? That's the heart of all things. Um... Uh, it's sort of very Freudian in its way, and it drives me bananas. Um, so, um, so I, 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 I'm thinking. Um, interesting. Carita says, "So we don't want to remind people of Snape and Lily too much." You know, I actually have to say, I think that Rowling did it relatively well there. I, I thought that the way that uh, the way that we see Snape's desire for Lily being at the heart of what made him the complex and messed up person that he was. Um, I, I thought that was actually done reasonably well, that it wasn't only like, but in the end, like he seems complex and interesting, but it actually just all boils down to the fact that he had a crush on Lily. Um, it wasn't reductive. That's what I dislike about so many Hollywood romance plots is that they're reductive. And I think that we can avoid that. Um, uh, but it is a very delicate line, and there would be, I think, a very big risk of having it at least appear reductive, if not actually be reductive in fact, if we seem to be transforming um, or, or just sort of replacing Melkor's desire for light and his desire for the imperishable flame. And just replacing that with, he thinks Varda is awfully cute, and then but she's not into him, and so in bitterness he turns against the world. Like, if people think that's the story that we're telling, that's awful. And we've done a horrible thing. So we do have to be really careful about that. Um, I don't think we just have this one episode to play that out. I mean, when he comes to, to Arda, we can, we can choose to have the whole Varda issue be a non-issue for him anymore. You know, the way that he interacts with her. I mean, it, 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 so we have ways we can go with it that aren't limited just to this one episode in terms of, you know. And, and I, you know, I, I would rather us show it more as like one data point or one piece of like a larger, you know, bunch of pieces that eventually you know crash down and make him evil so anyway I mean I just don't think we need to the whole the whole issue doesn't need to necessarily be encapsulated in this one episode we can show once he gets to Arda that maybe it's not an issue or that he I don't know I mean I can't remember if he harbors does he harbor issue with her throughout I can't remember now doesn't seem to really come up yeah it doesn't does it or he, or he starts projecting it onto other characters. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right, right. Be. So um, I, I mentioned before that I had had this, like, luminous shining idea, and then I never explained what it was. Here's my luminous shining <laughs> idea. Yeah. We have a scene in this episode where 
Melkor sees Varda, and it is a parallel anticipating Thingol and Melian and Baron and Luthien. He has a Thingol and Melian moment with Varda in the void. So that we, because this is, it's a very Tolkien, Tolkienian thing, right? That kind of typological parallel, right? Um, where you go back from, from you know, that the Baron's encounter with, uh, with Luthien and Thingol's encounter with Melian, um, to have, uh, Melkor's encounter with, uh, with Varda, I think would be a really cool parallel, uh, to those. Um, and cool because sort of unexpected. And I think one of the things that it does, it would also create, if that's our original kind of model, then when we get Thingo and Melian, and then later on when we get Baron and Luthien, um, it sort of, it sets those up for how unusual and even transgressive those instances are, those relationships are. Um, it really spotlights that, right? Um mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I would kind of like it if we came to Thingol and Melian and everybody was thinking like, oh man, this is a terrible idea, right? But it turns out like, okay, it's not a terrible, you know, it, it instead goes against those expectations. And then the Baron and Luthien one goes against them even more. Um, and you can even see a kind of progression, like one where these t- sort of, these two unlike uh, creatures meet and um, don't come together. And then the second time with Thingo and Melian, they meet and they do come together. Um, but it's still only... I almost want to say it's only temporary. Um, I mean, it lasts quite a while. It's not that Thingo and Melian just have a fling, but um, but it's not like Baron and Luthien, right? When Baron and Luthien come together, Luthien... Like, they, they, they join, and Luthien leaves behind. Like, Melian doesn't stop being a Maya when she, when she marries Thingol. Um, but Luthien does, in fact, cease to be one of the firstborn. Um, so we, we would have this progression where Varda says no, Melian says yes, but stays who she is. Luthien says yes and leaves who she is. Um, so I think that could be an interesting... Anyway, I, I was just... I, I The more I started thinking I like about it. the parallels, the more interesting I, I found it. I like it. Um, so, which, but we don't have to have him suspended in animation for an indeterminate amount of time. You know, he wouldn't have to spend like half an hour of the episode in stasis or something that probably wouldn't fly all that well on screen. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of those things that's going to be hard to do, as we've sort of joked about with Thingo and Melian before. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kimber Nelson has a great way of talking about this. She says, um, um, it doesn't need to, you know, the, the story doesn't need to focus on, like, a boy-girl love story, but on the bigger theme of his g- desire going too far. Yeah, and I, one of the things that I think that we do there is we have that be explicitly discussed between them. Like, Varda can, we'll, we'll talk to him, you know, Varda is on to him, right? Varda, I think, sees what he wants and what he is more clearly than he does, right? Um, he may believe... Um, he may already have convinced himself and genuinely believe that his desire for light is is selfless, right? His desire for light and for goodness is selfless. And she sees, no, you know, she sees like that the path he's on is a path towards 
to use uh, you know a, a a theme which is going to be very important later on in the Silmarillion story, a possessive love rather than a giving love. She sees that that's the direction he's already pointed in. He's not gone down the road yet, but he, that's that's the path he's 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 aiming at, right? And she sees that and would point it out to him, but he would resist it. So in their conversation, you know, their conversation doesn't go like, uh, you know, and, and that's where I think, Tom, that's where I think, you know, as, as Kimber was just suggesting, that's where I think that we avoid the, the sort of the deadly danger of merely transforming it into a, uh, into a sort of a cheesy romance, is that the topic of their conversation is not like, but I love you, Varda, and I would do anything for you, and I just think, you know... That's not what the topic of conversation is. They they speak of his, you know, they're talking about his desire. Um, and it's clear that in the end, like, basically the two of them aren't going to work together, but they should be alike one another. This is the other thing that I was thinking of. You think about the, you know, because I, you know, I tend to think about the, I think that we're invited to think about the Valar in more sort of basic and elemental terms, right? So you've got, for instance, um, you know, so, so, you know, I don't want to trivialize the Varda by just using equal signs, right? Like Manwe equals air, uh, you know, Olmo equals water. Um, but they're definitely associated with these, you know, fundamental elemental ideas. Varda is associated with light. That is the thing that she's associated with. Um, so on the one hand, um, uh, Melkor sort of coming to Varda, this is fire and light. That makes sense. That works, right? They could they could work together. That's a thing that could totally happen, um, but it doesn't happen, right? Light rejects fire here. Instead, what ends up happening? Whom does light end up with? Varda ends up with Manway. That is light and air together. And think about the way that their relationship is described in. Um, Think about the way that the relationship is described in in the Valaquenta. That is, when Varda is seated next to Manwe, then he can see further than anyone in Arda, and when he is next to her, she can hear further than anybody else. That is, their media complement each other, right? The medium of light and the medium of air. Um, when you combine light and air, you get both of those things, right? The light shines through the air and enables Manway to see. The air conveys sound to her and enables her to hear. They supplement each other in ways that fire and light don't supplement each other. It's like fire and light, those are more like siblings than they are like husband and wife in their relationship with each other, right? Varda and Melkor, I think, should be a lot alike. Um, you know, but but they, um, but yet they're different. And the way that they're different is in light is more sort of, I don't know, uh, more sort of pure. She, 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 she sees more clearly. She gets it better. She sees him more clearly. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman says, uh, his fire consumes and hers does not. That's an interesting way to think about it. Um, Cheryl well, her fire illuminates, you know, illuminates clearly where his fire casts uh, shadows. You know what I mean? Like a fire, it, it illuminates, but there's also shadows cast at the same time. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, Cheryl has a really fascinating point. She says, fire needs air too. What about a relationship between Manwe and Melkor? I, I, absolutely, Cheryl. I think we should build that. Um, that's exactly, I mean... I, 
it's one of the things that I would like to see us focus on in the next episode when he comes to Almerin, um, and we sort of establish. I, I I would love for us to get a glimpse of here's how it should be, right? Here's how all of the Valar, including Melkor, could and should be working together. Um, because you're absolutely right. Fire and air together, air and water together. And, and as, you know, here's where we do some of that stuff from the conversation between Aule and Iluvatar at the end of the Aina Lindale, when mm-hmm. the extremes of heat and cold that Melkor has brought about actually, you know, not only enable beauties that Melkor had not anticipated, but even bring together, as Iluvatar emphasizes, like through the cloud, through the steam and the clouds, um, Ulmo and Manwe are brought closer together than they would have been otherwise. So again, you can see the potential harmony of them, how they were all supposed to work together, how sort of the, the larger, um, sheet music, you know, the larger theme of the great music was all supposed to work. Um, and I, I would love to sort of show a glimpse of that. Yeah. Anyway, um, so these are some of the things that I think that we can we can do, and 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 many of you are are suggesting visual cues about how we can you know the 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 quality of the light that comes from Varda compared to the light that comes from Melkor, um, uh, you know the business about fire consuming versus not consuming as uh, as as Tom said. Um, you know, uh, uh, Marielle Gage would just said that, you know, his light blinds and hers illuminates. Um, yeah, his light can be brighter than hers, I think. But that's sort of the problem, right? Her light is reflected light. The light of Iluvatar is reflected in her face, we're told. Um, her light is reflected light. His light is his own light. His own light shining out, and he can't sort of see by his own light. He's blinded by his own light. Um, well, and of course we can go with color tropes. You know, like hers would be more white and his would be more orange-red. Yep, yep. Yeah, we could definitely do that in color tropes, I think. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, ooh, Marielle says, could he see her in the void because she has followed him as she already suspects what he's doing? Um, I, I, that's interesting. That's interesting. I like that. But let's come back. We still have a few minutes. So let's come back to the, the, the sort of the frame question then and the, 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 the flashback question. How do we get here? How do we get to the void visually? Um, do we do a double flashback? That is, do we have, you know, we start with Estelle and Elrond and, you know, starting in the Rivendell frame would be easy for this episode, right? I mean, we just start with Estelle being like, okay, so I, I, I'm confused about the music thing, right? You said that Melkor rebelled, but like, why did, you know, basically he can ask the question which so many people ask, you know, as this is what I love about Estelle in the whole pedagogical frame is that we can have him ask all the questions that people always ask about the, you know, the Aino Lindale and the beginning of Tolkien's mythology. Ask a question like, so, well, I don't understand. If Melkor was evil, why did, why did Iluvatar create something that was evil? And Elrond can say, nothing is evil in the beginning, right? And, and, th- and that's what segues us into, uh, describe, you know, Melkor in the void. Or, do we do the double thing? Do we go back to, cause we've just established, you know, we've just established the Valar in Almarin in episode two. Do we go back to Manway and Varda 
and have the story basic the story of of Melkor and Varda in the void be essentially told from Varda's point of view. Um, she's obviously the eyewitness from which this, these stories ultimately come. But do we do that kind of frame? Do we have a, 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 a conversation between um, between Manwe and Varda, um, um, sort of framing that? That was a that was a. a, a an argument that Gabrielle Wilson made on the on the discussion board. She was suggesting that Manway could have a conversation uh, with uh, with Varda, and she could tell him about Melkor, and that's how that's how it could start. I mean, that's still we get the um, we still get the problem of the sort of the double frame. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not liking the double frame the same way I'm not liking two names for Melkor at this point. Um, right. I mean, I know we've talked about having different frames, and I think that's right, but I know we've also talked about doing it like almost a season-to-season kind of thing as opposed to jumping around within a season with different narrators. Um, I, I like that, you know, like Cheryl Cardoza says, you know, it's an a, a effective idea seeing the story through an innocent, you know, through SL's right. eyes or through his questions. I think that's really convenient, actually. It's really I, I don't, convenient. I think, I think we're all in agreement we don't want that, you know, we don't want an interruption like Princess Bride type interruptions right. frame narrative wise. But um but I think if we did it judiciously, I think that could be really effective is to have it be still Elrond um a self frame. And this this could be an episode in which we spend very little time in Rivendell, I think. You know, exactly. we could we could get yeah, like no, you know, sixty to ninety seconds at the beginning, um in which um uh in which right. Estelle I mean, the asks the question. Started, exactly. The whole thing could start with that one question. Yeah. About yeah. you start out evil. I mean, that's, and then, you know, maybe we wrap it up at the end with the 30 second something or other, or not. I don't know. doesn't even need really to have the frame at the end. Yeah, I don't think we have to be obliged to come back to the frame at the end of every episode. No, no I, agree. I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I, I kind of think the... I kind of think having a couple of characters talk about Melkor sort of off, you know, while he's off screen kind of starts falling into the realm of, you know, like, uh, you know, like, like, like the old adage is rather than tell, you know, show, don't tell. Don't like, tell. Right. they're having characters talking about what another character's doing. You start sort of start asking why, why don't we just show that guy doing that? Right. Right. Uh, but I guess, you know, the issue then becomes: Does that communicate clearly the the context and why this is a problem, um, or do we need to, you know, like like is it useful to have have um, other characters' commentary on his behavior and how and how it might be disrupting things? I don't know. That's probably for next time. I mean, that could certainly happen next yeah. time or in the in the next few episodes. I think that's the um, that's the main. That's kind of the preliminary, I guess, objection I have to um, uh, having that kind of an internal frame is that I don't know how we make an excuse for Manway and Varda to be having that conversation even because he's not there yet. He's not even come up. I mean, you know, we could just be like, uh, you know, have Varda be like, did I ever tell you about my ex? Right. And, you know, and they, they start their conversation <laughs> that way. Um, but uh, that's that, part of an argument or something where she wants to make him jealous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they're still like in the like prenup phase, you know, and she's like, I should, you know, I should, I should probably tell you about this other guy like, who, who, you know, or, or the other one is like, don't think 
that you're the only one that's been attracted to you, buddy. Right, well, yeah, it could just be a warning, right? Like, I should probably tell you, there's this guy who is really into me, and he might show up Uh, like a bad penny any time, you know, so you should probably be on on your lookout. Um, uh, Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'd say, I I, I don't see us doing that. Um, And the other thing with that is, I think the Valar... I think this. I think maybe we said this before. I don't remember, but I, it, I definitely get this just in the in the books that you know they they kind of get that he's a problem, or they kind of get that he's like questionable, but they honestly don't get the extent. Yes, they don't understand the yes. full extent at yes. all, and they continue to do that. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. I mean, so, like we can't forget. Like the music has happened, right? They saw the like the 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 discord of Melkor. They they right. they they heard the discord. The, the the discord they 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 knew it was him right so when he shows up they're not going to be like oh who's this guy he looks great let's be right. friends right they're going to know that it was him and that his was you know so like i mean i think it kind of has to we have to sort of raise that awkward topic topic next episode right you know to be all right. like uh hi so uh sorry about the whole discord thing i'm better now um how are we going right. to do that you know that's that's a question for next time but um uh, but uh, but yeah, so no, they 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 do they do know who he is, but exactly they don't they they don't, and that I think is again that's progressively what's happening throughout the whole season, right? It's not right. until the very end that they actually get it. No, no, he's he's actually evil now, right? This is this is not he's not okay. Like he's not going to just be okay. We can, we're not going to be able to talk him out of this. Um, uh, the only You're thing about the end of season two, right? the, no, here I'm talking about the end of season one. Um, he still doesn't, he, he doesn't have his big shift. I mean, you're right about the, the Morgoth shift we were discussing at the end of season two, but no, I'm talking about like when they decide to go to war because it's when the children are coming, right? And when they're anticipating oh, like, right. the time for the children coming. Lapse. I mean, when they put him in chains and stuff, they still lapse back to their old ways. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. It's not absolutely final, final until the end of season two in terms of they're like, okay, we get it. We understand now. <laughs> right, yeah, they still don't get, cause you're right, like, uh, you know, Manway and Nienna are still gonna be all like, oh, let's give him another chance, right, when they, when right. they unchain right. him in season two. And they believe him when he says, I'll be good, I'll be good. Exactly, exactly. And I think that maybe we believe him partially, but anyhow, um, that would um be good, yeah. so, uh, um, yeah, so, um, but I'm thinking, I, I wouldn't want to depart too drastically from the overall narrative structure that we use. Um, it makes most sense to me to have, I mean, we have Elrond's lessons and Estelle's questions as the perfect excuse to jump in the frame, right? We don't have to have a contiguous story, um, Right. It would have to be a flashback, like a Manway Varda conversation flashback, if we had no frame story at all, right? If we were just following the first age events, we're going out of chronological sequence, and you can't go out of chronological sequence without giving some cue, without giving some excuse for that. But we don't need an excuse, right? Not if we're, not if, if we're going back to the frame and having Estelle ask another question, which explicitly looks backwards, right? Hang on, wait a second. I don't understand. Why is, why is Melkor evil? Why did Iluvatar create somebody evil? Um, then Elrond says, well, okay, you know, like, let's go back. He wasn't evil in, in his beginning. And then now we're talking about Melkor's beginning and off we go. Um, I, I think if we do anything more elaborate in the frame, it's going to, 
I think if we skip the frame, it changes the narrative structure, and that's going to be difficult and confusing. And I think that if we... I mean, unnecessarily difficult and confusing. And I think that if we try to do something more elaborate in the frame, Philip Menzies had suggested the idea of having a sort of a parallel story going on in the frame. And I, I kind of like that conceptually, but I think it's just going to kind of distract too much. Um, and... Um, and anyway, I, I also sort of am feeling like the, I, at least I can't think of any parallels that wouldn't, um, be reductive on the Melkor story. I mean, it wouldn't really sort of approach the kind of the elemental power of the Melkor story itself. Um, but, um... What do you guys think about the visuals of the void? I pushed that off earlier on, but we shouldn't push it off forever. These are always the hardest questions. They really are. They really are. Gabrielle Wilson uh, on on the discussion board again. She had you know an interesting point. She does you know she points out that of course Melkor's wanderings in the void are pre Arda, so he wouldn't have a corporeal body, right? Um, Yeah, that's one of those things. I'm putting that down on the the start. I'm going to start a running list of of. Things that are, you know, like splitting hair points that I think we shouldn't let get in the way of doing what works on screen, which is if what makes most sense is to have Melkor walking around with something that looks like a body, then we should give him a body. And then something that looks like ground. But what if we do it from Melkor's viewpoint? What if we do it from Melkor's quote unquote eyes as if we are Melkor? You know, in other words, everything we see in the point is from his viewpoint. First person. Yeah, it gets rid of the corporal body, at least for him. I mean, it doesn't get rid of the corporal body for Varda. For Varda, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, it only shuffles no. the point down. Yeah. Um, she could be bathed in light. Have... She could be like a form bathed in light or something when he talks to her. Honestly, on, and honestly, like, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure some of the listeners are going to disagree with this, but we really just, I think we should try and minimize the number of um, conversations that that are had between like sort of formless clouds. Yes. <laughs> As Sheriff Cardoza said, it's so easy to be cheesy in the void. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, and from a and from sort of a, from you know kind of a more practical point, like I don't know, like a big part of the draw of shows like this when people when people get invested and watch them is is the actors and the actresses, is the casting when people really. They like the chemistry between a pair of a, um, pair of actors, or they just like the sort of the the way somebody's delivering the lines, or you know, it's hard to portray. So, for example, let's say we want to portray um, how creeped out Varda is by Melkor's behavior, or how creepy Melkor's behavior is. Going to be a lot harder to do that if we don't have actors on screen. Yes, yes, it is, and and you're absolutely right. It's going to be hard even to attract people's attention to scenes of two different shades of light having a conversation with each other. Um, <laughs> that's incredibly boring. I agree. I agree. I um, mean, that doesn't mean we couldn't do some special effects or even animated or something like that. But I still, I think, at the end of the day, like there needs to be something that kind of resembles like a a a, a, a living being. Well, and here's my thought. The idea that we had for season one anyway, I mean, remember all through season one, we're pre-Children of Iluvatar, so we had already talked about having the Valar look different before and after the Children of Iluvatar when they are sort of accommodating themselves to the shape and the, and the form of the Children of Iluvatar. Um, 
But I do still think they need to look like people. Because remember, they do, that is, the Valar do have a vague idea of what the children of Iluvatar are going to look like. I mean, after all, Aule made the dwarves. Aule should totally look like a dwarf, by the way. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he, he totally should. I mean, because that's his idea of what the children of Iluvatar look like, right? So that's he right. should totally look dwarf-like. Because, not, that he's not, not that he's making the dwarves just after his own image, but again, both his own form and the form of the dwarves that he makes are both of them derived from his not entirely accurate concept of what the children of Iluvatar are going to look like. Do you, think, do you think he's showing up to like all the, the 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 Valar gatherings, and he's like the rest of them look a little bit more like men and elves, and he's just like this weirdo who insists. No, this is what they look. This is what they're gonna look. Like. Yeah, they're all tall and graceful, and he comes in like all squat and stumpy, and he's like, "Dude, didn't you guys get the memo? That is totally not what the children of Iluvatar are gonna look like. <laughs> they're obviously going to be stocky and bearded. I don't know what you people are thinking." Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, well, but I think it's, uh, uh, again, it reflects their own being. But, but yeah, I mean, I do think we do have to make clear. I mean, there's no way, we, as you say, we can't do one single episode, much less an entire season, where, you know, the characters are, you know, like Olmo is some, like, water spout, you know. Uh, he, they have to look like people. I mean, they they, they need to be anthropoid throughout season one. Um, and what I'm thinking of here, like basically I, I would like to see, uh, the Valar in forms, which can be done primarily through makeup and maybe with a little bit of special effects. Yeah. But still practical actors dressed up. It's all, about the, it's all about the practical effects these days. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so, but basically, the point I'm leading up to, I don't think they need to look different in the void. Because the, to me, the big dividing line is pre and post the arrival of the children of Iluvatar. Um, right. the, the, the forms that they take on, the visual, the visible forms that they take on when they descend into Arda before the children come, why need those be different from how they would visibly represent themselves in the void? You know, I mean, assuming that they're going to visibly represent themselves, which let's face it, since we're doing something in a visual medium, we have to kind of assume that they're going to take a visible form of some kind. The only thing worse than two clouds talking to each other are two invisible people talking to each other, right? Just two disembodied voices having a conversation. It's the only way it could possibly be more boring. So... so we have uh, the actors just make them translucent when they're up at the void, right? Something like that. I, that would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we can... So you can still see the the people you can still see the actors yeah have it be maybe have them be like a little like more ghostly you know to sort of indicate they don't have a corporate you know they they don't have a they don't they haven't taken on a physical body yet but they still have a shape and they have a clear shape and you could identify the actor um yeah. i and i think that in some sense i think the same is true of portraying the the setting of the void as well like we we don't there's a, there the, the the whole story is very the, like like the Ina Lindale and and a lot of the the details around it like Melkor's search through the void are sort of in some sense metaphorical yes and so 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 we can I don't see any reason why we have to try and like accurately visually portray what it must be like for for formless beings to be traveling through a you know like a nether region like. Let's put something on screen that communicates what 
what what was really going on with Melkor and Varda and the Void and that kind of stuff. And it doesn't well, have to look about, at... Yeah, well, I was just thinking, let's think about why would being... Why would being being banished to the void be such a torture for Melkorgoth, you know, many eons from now, would be something like, I mean, I could see along the lines of what you were just saying, Dave, that perhaps there are shapes or, you know, just like this translucent thing, but they're not tangible. He can't, he can't control anything. He can't have anything. He can't grasp anything, and that's torture for him. That could be a way of showing the void. Well, um, um, That's more interesting than just solid black Here's 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 another factor. It's not just in the void. And in fact, most of the action of this episode needn't happen in the void. Um, yeah. It's not just the void. Oh, no, that's true. Remember, that's true. Uh, uh, here, let me read again. And a sound arose of endless interchanging melodies, I know in the way, of course, uh, woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing into the depths and into the heights. Ready for it? And the places of the dwelling of Iluvatar were filled to overflowing. Right? Iluvatar dwells in a place. It's not all void. Right? There is a void, but it's out there. Right? And Melkor goes out into it. Right? So, uh, so we can have a place. He can, I don't know what the halls of, what the place of the dwelling of Iluvatar looks like, and we can make it all like misty and, and indeterminate and whatever. We could do that however we want. Um, though I kind of think it would be nice if there were ways in which the dwelling that the Valar make in Almarin is reminiscent of it, right? That they're like trying yeah, to yeah. do an homage to the dwelling yeah. of Iluvatar. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah. so all you set people, Get get working on the you know p- people who want to design sets and locales. Be thinking about the dwelling of the places of Iluvatar. That's not much. I mean, hey, if the music, if the if the musicians are composing the music of the Ainur, the least you can do is you know do a do a sketch of the of the dwelling of Iluvatar, right? So anyway, um, we've got the places of the dwelling of Iluvatar. Melkor's going out to the void. I mean, the conversation between Varda and Melkor can happen in the dwelling. Right, you know, maybe they're like looking out a window to the void, or Varda comes along just as Melkor was sneaking out the back door of the dwelling of Iluvatar and going out, and she's like out into the void again, Melkor, seriously, and he's like, anyway, you know, so like it doesn't have to happen in the void. We can make the void black and dark. That's okay, um, or it, we can make it gray. Who was it? I'm forgetting now. Somebody on the discussion boards was talking about making the void um, all like. Not having it black, but having it all like gray, like being in the middle of a cloud. Misty. Misty, yeah. Misty, yeah. 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 Um, That's a good idea. Yeah, you're right. The void doesn't have to be black. Right. Yeah. Tom Hillman says, yeah, it's like, uh, like they're sitting looking off of Nienna's back porch. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like that. Um, right. Yeah, just make it look like the California Inland Empire. <laughs> Right. The California coast on a June day, on a June morning. <laughs> the fog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, see, we, if we wanted to do witty dialogue, we could even have Varda make jokes about it, right? Admiring the view, right, as he's looked staring out into the nothingness. Um, but anyway, the, 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 the point is, um, you know, we don't have to have, so we don't have to have just balls of light talking to each other and we don't have to have no setting. Um, I mean, we do need to be careful. I don't want this to look like a hokey version of Mount Olympus either, you know, like, in God, a, no. you know, that's, that, 
the way that the Greek gods have been depicted in in movies are like a, you know, one of my comprehensive how to not do it. You know, things I want to avoid in the Silmarillion project, but. Um, well, I do think it's almost like backward construction. You know, you're right. I think what would we want uh, Almoran or, or or Valinar to look like, and then that would become kind of what the dwellings of Iluvatar would look like. Right. Or, you know, that they were closely related. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so, yeah. And Cheryl's, Cheryl's right, Cheryl Cardoza says, wouldn't the void be a frontier that a curious person would want to explore? It needs to have some attraction. I, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I, and I, I think that maybe even their conversation, Varda and, and Melkor's conversation could start there, right? Um, as he's like talking about how like you know like don't you want to know what's out there like don't you want to see don't you want to uh you know to 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 make things um yeah yeah um yeah so so i don't think that the problems of the void are quite as grave as they need necessarily as they sort of might look at first and actually, you know, you raise a good point. I mean, this this idea of sitting in rocking chairs on Anna's back porch. I mean, Varda, and, uh, the convers there can obviously multiple conversations with, between Mel- Melkor and Varda that start off congenial, and he actually shares a lot of what's on his mind with her, which gives you know, which is a better way than than narrating what's on his mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over multiple conversations, not just one single, but you know, and she's she's um, uh, empathetic and listens, and of course, which makes him think that she's into him, and causes you know <laughs> an understanding later on down the line. Right, right, and might also. I mean, and as several people have said, and as I agree, we want to make Melkor an attractive figure. You know, we want right. yes. we want we we would like our our viewers to like him, and. I think it would be interesting to have it be an active question. Is Varda going to go with him? Right? I mean, is, yeah, is, that's yeah, true. Maybe it doesn't open. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, she doesn't. By the end of the episode, she doesn't, but that can be sort of, that can be sort of the question. And again, you know, you know, with still all of the same, um, uh, with all of the same um, uh, disclaimers about having to be careful not to just turn this into a into a, a merely a romance drama, um, but but still, you know, we I, there are still I think many things that we can do with their discussions of the void and the light and um, his desire. Well, you know, and a lot of what Melkor could be talking about is not so much you know drippy love stuff, but imagine yes. what we could do. You know, imagine exactly. what you and I could do. You know, it's more of a power. Like the power we'd have together, kind of thing. So not love, like oh, exactly, but more like you know, think of what we could do together, kind of thing. And that that could make a difference. I would. Th- how about we not have them talk about a relationship between them at all? We just ha- they just talk about light and uh, and it looks like they kind of agree and they might go the same way, but then in right. the end, it's clear that they don't go the same way. There, I think we can convey it non verbally, you know, that he's into her and she's not sure about him, and and she's like kind of into him, but then not sure about him, and then decides she's not into him. We can convey those things totally non verbally by our right. nicely non amorphous actors and actresses, and um. And uh, and that's another thing that's hard to do with clouds of light. Body language. That's challenging. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so... <laughs> it's 
facial expression. Nonverbal cues, exactly. Well, that's why disembodied voices are boring, because there are no nonverbal cues. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I think... But, but yeah, I think they never talk about it. I think he never propositions her. He never talks about them having a relationship. He just talks about, he, you know, wants her to come with him and to do, and to, you know, to sort of follow his desires the same way that he does, and she won't. Um, and, you know, it, it clearly adds up to a proposal and a rejection, but no verbal proposal is ever made and no verbal rejection ever given. Yeah. Yeah. Like it. Um, okay. All right. I think we're good. I, we should, I gotta, we've gotta, we've gotta close up here, but, uh, any final, yeah, any final thoughts from you guys before I go to questions for next week? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, questions for next week. Um, the first thing that I, I, that I was sort of realizing as I was reviewing things is that there's really, there's at least one question or really kind of two connected questions, um, that we really kind of have to ask for every single episode. Um, and that is, what is the story arc of this episode going to be? That's particularly imperative in these earlier episodes. Like, we have one challenge in season one. We'll have a different challenge later on. Like, when we're doing the Baron and Luthien story, right? The big question for each episode will be, how much of the story are we going to get through in this episode, and how are we going to shape it so that it works well as an episode and it doesn't just feel like a like a disappointingly small segment of a long story, right? Um, so that's one kind of challenge. In season one, we have a different kind of challenge, which is <clears throat> we have very little to work with as far as action scenes and dialogue and things are concerned from the Silmarillion. So we have to be inventing these stories and, um, you know, take something like the time that the Valar were in Almorin and actually make a story arc out of that. So, um, so that, so throughout this season, we're going to have to be thinking about that. So I, I definitely want you to be thinking about that question. What is going to be the story arc of the next episode? Um, where are we going to end it? What, what's going to be the cause? So the culmination of this first episode is basically the rejection of, of Melkor by, um, by Varda and then his turn and his, his becoming a loner. And this ends with him coming to Arda. Um, and, uh, you know, and maybe we introduce, uh, not Gothmog, uh, and his gorgeous winged non-Balrogs, um, in this episode. Or maybe we save that till the next episode. I'm not 100% sure about that. It would depend on how that worked. But, um, but anyway, um, we, um, you know, so that's the arc for this episode. What's the arc for the next episode? Where do we culminate? What's the, so all we have, what's the all story? All we have written down for the next episode is Melkor comes among the Valar. That's exactly. all we have written in yeah. our yeah. for the next episode. So, so we're not, there needs to be a little bit of work done. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a little static, right? So we've got to sort out. What's that What's that going to be? Um, specifically then, um, also, so now my second question, again, this is another recurring question, which is going to be relevant for every episode, and that's, what other bits, like, what other longer-term bits are we going to want to accomplish or introduce in this? How are we, you know, uh, how is that episode moving us towards the season finale of season one? But also, are there other, like, characters that we're going to want to introduce, you know, like, minor characters that we're going to want to introduce, um, to sort of plant seeds for future episodes, um... 
you know, are we going to introduce Sauron, for instance? When does he come in in this episode or the next episode? Um, you know, how are we going to do that? So thinking, thinking of those kind of longer term things. Now, as far as the specifics for this coming episode, um, my primary question is the one that I already raised earlier on, and that is, how are we going to depict the Valar's reaction to Melkor, right? I mean, there's got to be an awkward moment, right, with the whole discord thing right i get it's you know they they didn't forget about it they know that the that the discord happened they know that he sort of kind of seemed to really pretty much rebel against iluvatar um why would they accept him how can we make that make sense to anybody it's a challenge right um it's one of the problems it's one of the problems in tolkien's work is that there are times especially at the unchaining where the valar seem dumb right how can we Get at what Tolkien was getting at and, and do that in a way that helps people get that. You know, that really makes sense of it. So, his intro, his, yeah, that, that's his, a really good question. I, I think we have to, we, I think we have to dig deep and do something, um, something n- nuanced and, and, and thoughtful with that. I think you're right. Otherwise, it is going to look really stupid. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they'll just be like cartoonish, right? I mean, it's, 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 it can be very, it can be it could be very bad and then um <clears throat> i would want to th- think about in particular the relationship am- between melkor um which which of the other valar are we going to show him interacting with primarily i mean it's not just going to be in council right we're going to need to show personal interactions thinking in terms of the and i was going to ask this anyway but i've been thinking about it more since we've been since we were talking about you know, like the uh, <clears throat> the whole light and air, fire and air, water and air, fire and water kinds of relationships. Um, how are we going to do, you know, are we going to try to represent something like that? How are we going to show them acting together? I mentioned that I think it would be cool if in this next episode we focused on kind of giving a glimpse of how things might have been or how things should have been. Um, you know, how how is that? going to work? What should the the dynamics be? Because we've got to be setting the stage for what's going to be happening down the road, for ultimately the the, the battles and the conflicts and things that are going to be happening. Um, where are we going to draw the lines? How are those relationships going to be? So I want to, <clears throat> I want to have a list of <clears throat> what's our short list of the Valar that we really give speaking roles to in this next episode. <clears throat> it can't be all of them. Right. So whom do we want to focus on and what are their relationships and reactions to Morgoth, excuse me, Melkor going to be? Um, so who, which, which Valar are going to be focused on and what are their relationships with Melkor going to be? How are the Valar as a whole going to respond to Melkor and the whole awkward discord thing when he shows up? Those in addition to the overarching or the, rather the recurring every episode questions, what is actually the story arc of this episode going to be and what other long-term bits are we going to try to accomplish and fold into this episode those are our questions for next time and the reading is the same as before we're still basically in the first chapter of the quinta but you know <laughs> i hope i hope that you'll notice that uh <laughs> it's gonna and that's pretty much gonna be almost all season i mean uh it's gonna be uh 
uh, such a relief when we actually get to a new chapter, like when we do, you know, the Aule and Yavanna stuff and everything, uh, you know, when we get to Valinor, <laughs> but we're going to spend like five episodes in one chapter. Um, but you'll notice all the different references to the Valaquenta and the different passages in the Ainulindale that we're folding through. I mean, I would definitely recommend that you, you know, it's it's good to review. I've been rereading those chapters, the, the Ainulindale, the Valaquenta, and chapter one of the Quenta pretty much every time we do an episode. And it's really neat, you know, as we continue to see through, to, to think through this stuff, you know, there are different things that kind of pop out at you that you can see and notice. So I would definitely encourage you to continue to review, even if you have reread it, that you would continue to review uh, those sections and see what kind of jumps out at you that might be relevant to uh, to our fu- to our future episodes. Especially since we've you know you've you've portrayed you've definitely demonstrated to David like whole episodes could be contained in one phrase, not even yeah. a sentence, a yeah. phrase. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a really great. I mean, and and in this really, I feel like it's. Um, <sighs> In this, I find myself actually consciously modeling the adaptation approach, um, or following the model, um, that Lotro has taken in their adaptation. What I love about Lotro's adaptation of Tolkien, there's lots and lots of stuff that they just make up and go off on their own about. But almost everything that's in Tolkien is there. So like, you know, if, if Tolkien only says one thing, um, that one thing is definitely going to be there. There'll be lots of other things too that they've made up around that. But not only will they make it Will they include the one thing that Tolkien does say? They will sort of use that as the centerpiece, um, you know, kind of the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, germ from which the rest of it grows. Thinking about, for instance, Lotro's depiction of Radagast, you know, they talk about his friendship with birds and beasts, and so they, they sort of take that and then they put that at the center, and they, they you know, so they tell the story about Radagast and have him involved in these other things, but it all emerges from that one reference. Um, well, it's the same thing here, where we have this one reference to Varda rejecting Melk, you know, Mar- Melkor being drawn to Varda and her rejecting him, and we've sort of used that as the centerpiece of this entire, our entire investigation of Melkor's fall. Um, and that, that seems to me to work. I really like that approach. Rather than just going off completely, we are going off, you know, we have to go off and write our own story. But, um, you know, but that we have it, you know, sort of have that kind of a touchstone. So yeah, those kind of elements, even if it's a really small reference, you know, they can, that, that can turn into something which really can be at the heart of, you know, an entire episode or an entire, um, an entire series of episodes. So, hmm. and with that, and particularly with my references to Lotro, I am, uh, remembering that I'm due to be in Lotro doing my Grifflet stream in 13 minutes. So I should go. <laughs> so I'm going to say uh, thanks everybody for joining us uh, we've enjoyed having you all with us and I will say as always thanks for listening and Godspeed